Brethren, 63 years ago, this week, as I get older, I guess I get a little bit sentimental about the past, as old people are wont to do, but 63 years ago, this week, I took a long bus trip down from the mountains of central Idaho to Pasadena, California, and I was going to attend Ambassador College. I'd been hearing Mr. Armstrong since the winter of 1944, 1945, when the Second World War was still raging. I kept proving and looking into it more and more and realized that I had to come to Ambassador College. I just had to. I had to find out what's going on. And so I came out there, and I wanted to prove the truth or prove if he really understood the purpose of life. And I'm very grateful that I did. It changed my whole life, and my life has never been the, sense, the same since. I've told you this before, but I had a dear friend whose mother was the uh, violin teacher for my sister, uh, Mrs. Ames, Mrs. Porter, and Jimmy Porter and I were very close. And he knew that I'd been seeking for something in high school and junior college, especially after my other friend Jimmy Mallet had died, and I wondered why did God let Jimmy die and begin to seek for the answers. After, after I'd been to Ambassador College for a year or two, I can't remember when exactly, but I came back home for the summer, or part of a summer, I never came for more than a week or ten days, but I was with Jimmy at some occasion, and he said, Rod, whatever it was you were looking for, you found it, haven't you? He said, you look at peace. I said, that's right, I found it. And I came out there, and I did understand the purpose of life and understood things about the Creator God more than I had ever done. For the great God of the universe became real to me, in a way he never was before, and I've always been very grateful for that. I was moved by the whole atmosphere at Ambassador College, frankly. I was certainly moved in a special way by the radiant faith of Mr. Herbert Armstrong. But there were others out there, Mr. and Mrs. Eddie Eckert, Mrs. Mann, the first house mother, Bill Harmberger, who gave his life continually for the work in various ways and trusted in God, and many, many others. There was an atmosphere of trust in the God of the Bible, the God of creation, way beyond what I'd ever experienced in my Methodist church background or in any of my Protestant friends. In fact, many of them, when we'd have these gatherings, and the only guys in our gang that didn't drink at that time or ever drank much were Bob Warden and me, and sometimes they'd get too much. And then along about two or three the next morning, they'd start sobering up and say, well, what's going on? And I think, what's the, what does God say about this war? And I would, they, they thought I knew things. Well, I didn't know anything. I just had heard Mr. Armstrong, and that was a lot more than they knew. But I knew so little, and I learned so much after I came and was in that atmosphere. I saw God again and again begin to intervene in His people. And it was very encouraging and very inspiring. I don't mean once or twice. I mean dozens and dozens of times. I knew it was an invention. I can't even begin to tell you about all those times. I think I've mentioned one example that happened several times. The work of God would be in terrible straits because Mr. Armstrong was trying to build the work as fast as he could, and he was trying to buy these buildings for Ambassador College and hire ministers and hire teachers and get on more radio stations. There weren't any TV stations then that he was buying. Very few TV was just getting started. But sometimes he would spend more than perhaps he should have, but he kept trying to push ahead. And we didn't even get our checks. And we didn't have enough to eat. And things were going bad. 
And then two different times he said, we're going to have to close the college or else we'll have to send the girls home and we'll just be, have the money to keep you fellows here. There will be no girls. Of course, that shook us up real bad. <laughs> no girls. <laughs> so for a while, for about a year and a half, I was student body president. And with Mr. Armstrong's permission, I called a student fast. And any man, the house mother and Bill Harmberger and others around the area who were there with us a lot, they would hear about it and they would join in. And at those occasions, I mean this, brethren, there was no extra coworker letter, no announcement. We would just fast. And the money was so far down, the checks were bouncing and the bills were not being paid and the college was in danger or we were in danger of going off a radio station or whatever it was. And the money would just start coming. It would just start coming. Why? Well, because there is a real God in heaven. That's why. I had a certain childlike faith once I came into the church. And I know many of the young students did, but we certainly didn't have perfect faith. But we did believe and trust that God would do that. But I saw again and again and again he did do things like that. At the feast at Big Sandy, once we started meeting back there in 1953, we had long lines of people coming through. And many of them just had kids with bad colds or they had colds and all kinds of human problems. And we'd tell them how to eat better. But some of them had very serious problems. And I can't recount all the time, but there was every indication that many of them were supernaturally healed. And that was very encouraging, too, to see that. I saw God intervening in all those ways. I saw be, people being blessed and healed on the baptizing tours that we went out on. I've told you about some of them. I'll remind you of the one lady because that was especially inspiring to me. She brought her Baptist friend with her because she didn't know who these strange young men were for Mr. Armstrong. She wanted a friend to be there with her, I guess, which is fine. She was a 45 or 50-year-old lady, farm lady, and she had a withered arm just hung there like a rope growing up. The previous winter, she said, she had an anointed cloth from Herbert W. Armstrong. And around February, as I remember, and the arm began to grow out. And her Baptist friend, I'm from Missouri, you know, the show me state. So, of course, I checked up. I said to her friend, have you known her all her life? Yes. Was her arm just hanging? Oh, yeah, her arm was just hanging like a rope. I remember her mentioning just like a rope, small and shriveled up. And now it's just normal. And she held it out. She was wearing a short sleeve blouse because it was summertime. And she said, fellas, look. She said, this is the arm that was, uh, I think the left arm was the normal one. And this is the arm that was like a rope. And God healed it. And she said, just a little bit smaller than the normal arm. Do you know Why? I, she said, God healed the arm, and I can use it, but he's letting me milk the cows with both arms, so I build the muscles, and he's letting me do that. You know, I thought, well, that's wonderful. She just said it in a very normal way. She wasn't Pentecostal. She wasn't trying to create a stir. It was simply something that happened. God healed supernaturally her arm and caused it to grow out. Many other cases like that, on the early baptizing tours were very inspiring to me. I saw that God's way, the whole way of life, absolutely worked. But I began to realize the qualifier, it works in our lives. I saw it works in the lives of students. 
and faculty and brethren to the extent, only to the extent that people actually follow the Bible. If they believe the Bible, or I mean sort of believe some of it, but then they don't live that way, they may not get those blessings. But to the degree that they believe and obey, they are healed, they are blessed, they are delivered many, many times, over and over again. I saw that. I think I told you that then as we got bigger, some of our older brethren began to die, and I wondered, why can that be? Well, I began to realize God does not let everyone live to be exactly 70 years old. And I've told you this many times in the recent months, knowing that we're getting older as a congregation. You brethren around the world are hearing this, I hope. Most people on earth do die between age 65 and 85. We wish they'd all live to be 90 or 94 like Mr. Apartian did. And I wish they would. Of course, we love them. We hate to lose any of them. I lost my first wife when she was only 40 years old. I never fully understood that. I still don't fully understand it. I have an idea, but I don't know. But I know that God's work carried right on. The big prophecies and world events carried right on. And that God is real. God lets some people die when they're younger. I've told you about Richard David Armstrong, Mr. Armstrong's older son. I was much closer to him personally as a friend and spent more hours with him than Ted Armstrong, whom I got to know and love later. But Dick and I spent thousands of hours together. And I said, so mean thousands. And God let Dick die at age 29. That shook me up. I thought God does let accidents happen. But God sort of gave a sign. He let Dick perform three unusual miracles just before he died. One of them was Howard Clark, whom I've told you about too, who was a quadriplegic, just sat in a wheelchair, couldn't move, and God healed him through Dick Armstrong's prayers over Pentecost weekend, 1958. It's as though God is saying, Dick's okay. Dick's okay, but I'm going to take him. And he had other reasons for that. God guides our lives in different ways. But the sun keeps coming up every morning. The moon quietly goes through the sky at night. Events keep on. And the big major events keep on going, just like God said. And I can see that now the last few years and even earlier because more things have happened by now or starting to happen. All those sea gates, Mr. Armstrong said, would be taken away have been taken away already. They're gone, except for Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands. The Strait of Hormuz was used to be controlled by Britain on both sides. It's gone. The Suez Canal is gone. They control the Bob of El Mandeb at the southern entrance to the Red Sea. It's gone. The Simonson's base controlling South Africa. It's gone. They're all gone. Panama is gone. The only things left are Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands and they're being agitated against right now to get them away from Britain, as most of you know if you read the world news. So one or two of them may be gone as well in the next few years. Big major events. The God of the Bible is very, very real, and he's with us. He guides our lives in so many ways. It's important we really understand that. I saw that God truly works in the lives of human beings and in the affairs of nations, according to his word, he is real, he acts. So, I think we need to ask ourselves one thing as we think about this great truth, how real God is and how he keeps his word. Brethren, why is Abraham 
called the father of the faithful. Why was he not called the father of those who love God? Why was he not called the father of the obedient? His title, given twice in Romans, is the father of the faithful. Why? Because that's such a very basic thing in God's mind. You can't really love God unless you believe that he exists. You can't obey God, and you won't obey God unless you first have faith, you see it, unless you know that he exists. Faith comes first, and you've got to realize how important that is. And I hope all of us can think about it here this afternoon. Turn with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 11 at this point. Most of you are familiar with that. It's called the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read here, beginning at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must, not might, but must believe that he is. You've got to know that he is there and that he is a rewarder. He acts. He is the God who acts. He is a rewarder of those who diligently, not half-heartedly, diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, he didn't see it. He was just told it. He could look at the clear sky, and where's that rain? People were making fun of him, no doubt. Big ship, ha-ha, what's going on? But he had to have faith that that God in heaven who gave him that, that message was real. So move with godly fear, the awe of God, and faith in God, he prepared an ark and, and showed his faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. He'd never been there before. He simply took his wife, his family, and his nephew and others, and they all went together to a place they'd never been before, the land of Canaan, where there are all kinds of troubles and Gentiles who were very barbaric and so on. He had her sort of allowed by God to kind of tell the story that she was his sister, his wife. She was his half-sister because he was afraid they'd kill him. They were not people of God at all. He had to have faith to do that, to go out there. But because he trusted God, not knowing where he was going, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for a city. We know what that city is. The new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And it goes on telling about the faith of the great men and women of God who put their faith, real faith, not just hope, but faith in the invisible God who reveals himself through his creation and who reveals himself in the Bible. So he had that kind of faith, and he is called the father, not of love, not of obedience, but the father of the faithful. So that's where our real relationship with God. And brethren, every one of us here needs to develop a radiant faith an absolute radiant faith to believe in God, to know it's going to happen, and to act that way, to speak that way, to feel that way sincerely. You can't just put it on. I'm going to give you some keys later to do it. And I'm not going to fully explain them because they're pretty obvious. But I just want you to follow that and to realize the importance of building that radiant faith. 
as we grow in power in this work, we're going to be persecuted terribly. Other things are going to go wrong. Others beside our beloved friend, Wayne Pyle, will die. I'm not trying to pick on anyone. I'm older than most of you here. So if this includes me, but when you get up in your 70s and 80s and 90s and even some of your 60s, we don't all live to be exactly 70 years old. You know that. If we all live to be exactly 70, you'd say zero minus one, zero minus, you know, whatever, and that would be the end. Doesn't go that way. We know that. But we live to be about 70, and most people in our society live to be about 65 to 85. We live a little bit younger because we have a more varied diet than we used to have, and people do take better care of themselves, supposedly. They do, I guess, in some ways. And we live longer than our ancestors did, our recent ancestors. When we go way back when they had clean food and clean water and no uh, false foods, fortified foods and whatever, then we then they did live longer at the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, of course. But we've got to be- develop a real faith in God a radiant faith because we're going to have persecution and will we shrink back when that trouble comes? As I've said before, brethren, trouble is going to come on us as the work does a more powerful job and we can be very grateful for that. But we must not shrink back. As I've said before, sometimes your trouble will not be just when you're all sitting here together. I may be sitting at a jail cell in a foreign city alone No one else may be there. There may not even be an outside window. I can hear clunking of boots up and down the hallway outside or the jailer going here and there. I can feel very lonesome, very cut off from God if I didn't know God. We've got to realize some some of our trouble will come when we are alone. We won't always have a lot of moral support. So we want to have that knowledge of God, that absolute faith that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Turn back now to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Don't give up and quit, ever. Trials will come, sickness will come, death will come. Persecution will come. Harassment will come. They're going to harass us. They're going to call us bad names and accuse us of things we never did or even thought of. Get ready for it. Have faith that God is real. It's going to work out for good if you trust in Him. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while and He who is coming will come. Then say he might come, he will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. So we must build a radiant faith, especially in our time, for the just will live by faith. But if anyone draws back, well, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure about God. And, you know, Mr. Meredith made some mistakes, or Mr. League offended me. Or Mr. Uh, Winnell wrote some article I disagree with or whatever it is. I'll leave the church because of some technical thing somewhere or some mistake that somebody made. You better not. If there is a real God and this is his church, you want to see above and beyond men. Will you see me make mistakes? 
talk to my wife. She can talk to you the rest of the day. <laughs> Tell about all the mistakes I make. Because I make a lot of human mistakes. That shouldn't cause you to fall away. I saw Mr. Armstrong make scores of mistakes. And of course, as he himself said, Herbert Armstrong makes hundreds of mistakes. But God, or brethren, God never allowed me to make any mistakes so serious that would wreck the work. Of course, he would say things or maybe in a wrong way or have some human thing and so on that we have. But he did the work. He basically walked with God. He basically taught the truth with all of his heart and God used him. But he was not perfect. I'm not perfect. Mr. Ames is not perfect. Dr. Nail, none of us are perfect. You look beyond us to the God who inspired this book. You look beyond us to the God who set that beautiful moon up in the sky. Our son Jonathan got my wife and me to come out. We were having dinner at home last night and come out and see. He said it's a blue moon. Apparently, every just every four or five years, there's sort of a blue halo around the moon. It's not come very often. It was very beautiful. An absolutely full moon with a kind of a blue halo around it. And so we looked up. And, of course, I thought about God and how he guides that. He's in charge of that. I thought about another moon I looked at. I didn't tell Jonathan or my wife that because they'd heard this story before. Maybe you have, but back in 1951, why Burke McNair and I were going on our baptizing tour. This was in 1952, I mean. And as we headed out across the desert, we stopped out in a country area and went up a little road there to stretch ourselves. And the, in Arizona, you know, the, the, the air is so clear, not much moisture in the air. Boy, the sun, moon, and the stars just beamed down, and it just came down a powerful moon. And I could always remember that, and I prayed out there all alone on that tour, knowing we were going to go all across the United States and Canada at the beginning of the tour and the previous tour, Raymond and I had guns pointed at us. People jumped on us, threatened us, and I knew it was coming the same way. I said, God, take care of us, watch over us, protect us. And I just briefly prayed two, three, five minutes there under that full moon. I wasn't praying to the moon. I hope you understand that. But it was a beautiful night. I'll never forget that. And God did guide us. God did deliver us. And he's been, been delivering me ever since for the past 60 years in his work. So he will take care of us. He tells us back in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's God's promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we want to understand that and know how real that is. So God is going to come in a little while. The just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God does not want us to draw back. God does not want us to shrink from tribulation, from doing his work with all of our heart, in spite of trials, no matter what. So we have to understand that this is important. This is what God wants. Back in Matthew 10, if you turn there with me, Matthew chapter 10, brethren, and let's begin reading in Matthew 10 and verse 16. Jesus Christ said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Some of these Jewish false prophets and others out there tried to kill them and harass them in all kinds of ways. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men, 
for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you. They'll whip you in their synagogues and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how to, or what you should speak. Don't try to plan some eloquent speech. Pray to God ahead of time. Have faith in God and have faith that God will give you what you ought to say. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father to child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. That happened a little bit, brethren, back in the 1950s particularly, because Mr. Armstrong was maybe overly zealous. I'm not saying he was, but I just remember he would often start off the old uh, World Tomorrow radio programs just blasting all across the south of the Bible Belt. He literally started out this way. You know, my friends, why aren't all these preachers teaching the truth? Why do they teach against God's law? Why do they deny the Bible? But, you know, he'd just come right out with that. And boy, that would make people mad. And so they would sometimes jump on us. Mr. Armstrong wasn't there, but we were there on their front doorstep. And the unconverted husband was ready to beat us up or shoot us on occasion. So we had some interesting times. And you have to have faith in God. So you'll be hated for all by by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So we've got to go through everything. But when they're persecuted in this city, uh, persecute you, then flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man come. Obviously, this is kind of a dual prophecy. We do the same thing. But that was specifically to them at the time of the Jews, and they would be thrown in the Jewish synagogue Later, we may be thrown just in a normal prison or anywhere. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? How much more are they going to call us, you know, sons of the devil? I had the great honor... I'm kidding now, but I have the great honor bestowed upon me this last week by one of our other great self-appointed prophets up here. He called me the great false prophet. That's kind of amusing in a way. Our guys enjoyed that. I told them that. I think one other great false prophet that calls himself a prophet and apostle, he said years ago that I was the most dangerous man in the world. And I came home to Cheryl, and I told her, I said, so-and-so, uh, Cheryl has written that I'm the most dangerous. You are living with the most dangerous man in the world. Aren't you afraid? Of course, she laughed. But I was the most dangerous man in the world to him because he was trying to appeal to the ex-worldwiders who were conservative. And here comes along his Bible teacher who was a ten times better known in starting his work. So, of course, I was very dangerous to him, if you see what I mean. So he called me the most dangerous man in the world. And later, several paragraphs later, he then said, I'm the most dangerous man in the world because I did not acknowledge the government of God. Well, of course, I teach the same pattern that Mr. Armstrong taught, but I did not follow the government of God according to this man, if you follow me. Since I didn't think his government was that, then that made me very dangerous to him. So we will be accused by other 
parts of the greater church of God, if we call it that, will be accused by the world, will be accused and will be actually hurt physically by carnal people who don't know God at all. They're the ones most likely to take a gun or a board or a knife and try to hurt us physically. But we've got to be ready for it. Whether it's words, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, words do hurt us sometimes. But on the other hand, it's so absolutely untrue. They're silly. They won't hurt very much. But we need to get used to it. If you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen, as they say. So they'll call the master of the house, Beelzebub, which was Christ. He was the master. How much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. God's going to bring all this stuff out from these self-appointed prophets and apostles. He's going to deal with them. We don't have to worry about it. They're kind of a joke in a sense. They're silly. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach to the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That was your ultimate life, your source of life. Don't fear those who could just take your temporary physical life, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna fire. He's the one to fear, the great God in whom we live and move and have our being. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? God knows everything about us, brethren. He is your father if you've been baptized and truly trust in him. He is your father. Think about that as you think about growing in faith. If I am truly God's son or God's daughter, I'm serving that great God who sets the sun and moon in the, up in the sky, who controls the rise and fall of nations. He, Of course he can heal my body. Of course he can deliver me. Of course he will take care of me. He promises he'll never leave me nor forsake me. And you can think on those thoughts and understand and think through how God has guided your life and the lives of others and grow in faith. Grow in faith. Build an atmosphere of faith in your life. And let's build an atmosphere of faith in this church. It's vital. We're going to need it very much in the years ahead. So let's understand that. The very hairs of your head are all numbered, Jesus went on to say. He knows every hair of your head. That's not just a simile. That's not just a metaphor. That's not just some kind of idea. It is the truth. Jesus didn't say it. as a, He meant it. You can say, well, how could God do that? That's silly. Well, little man, our little puny human brains can invent these machines we call computers and send rockets millions of miles into outer space and land them on a planet where everything has to be exact to get them on the moon or later on Mars. Our little tiny brains. How big is God's mind? How big is the God you serve? Of course he can keep track if he wants to of every hair of your head, every disease you have, every thing that might be bothering your liver or your stomach or your, your heart or whatever it is. He knows. He knows more than the doctors know. He knows exactly what's there. They give it some scientific name and they partly know it. And an honest doctor, I've talked to many of them. I was kind of the, the one who worked with our college doctors, kind of the, uh, I forget the title we gave me, but kind of working with them. 
And they admit those things. They, they don't know everything. They can know bits and pieces of what's going on. They don't know the whole thing. Only God can know that. But he has a perfect knowledge. Every hair of our head is numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. God loves us. He's made us in his image. He's called us out of this world, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we want to know that he knows all about us, and he knows exactly what's wrong, and he can take care of us, and he will take care of us. So we need to have that active faith. Active, radiant faith is vital for us to make it in the trials and tests just ahead. Notice Revelation chapter 21, brethren. Turn to Revelation chapter 21 now, if you would. And I want to... This is familiar, but a lot of us don't read it very much or think about it very realistically. But I'm telling you, as God's servant, God means exactly what he says here. And you can see that by reading other things in the Bible where it essentially says the same thing. Revelation 21, <clears throat> verse 7. He who overcomes, we'd all got to be overcomers to be in the kingdom of God. He who overcomes shall be or shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, here's the big but, and you think need to think about it. But the cowardly, wow, he starts right out with that word. The cowardly, the unbelieving. Oh, I'm not afraid, and I'm not sure God's there, and I'm sure God's going to do anything. And and, you know, God let so-and-so die or God let this go wrong and something not working out in the church. The deacons have been bad for me and I can't be sure God's around anymore. I can't be sure Christ is in charge anymore because someone's made a mistake. Of course people make mistakes. That doesn't have anything to do with what God does, but he allows humans to make mistakes, but he's still there. God's word stands and nothing can stay his hand. If he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. So we've got to overcome, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. It's another thing we need to concentrate on. We must not ever become liars. God hates liars. God hates a lie, I should say, not the liar, but he hates the, the action of lying. Why does he get so strong about that? Well, brethren, if I find one of you lying or you find me lying, then you say, well, this guy comes up and says, I'm sorry. Well, you can't be sure he's sorry. If he's lied on a number of occasions, well, maybe he's sorry. Maybe he's not sorry. Maybe you keep right on doing it again. Do you see what I mean? If God is a liar, you wouldn't be sure he'd heal you. You wouldn't be sure he'd bless you. You wouldn't be sure he'd bring about these big prophecies he talks about. You wouldn't be sure he'd give you eternal life. You wouldn't be sure of anything. God is not a liar. And God does not want any of us to be liars because we are going to become members of the God family. We must not exaggerate to the extent it becomes a lie. We must not shift it around to the extent that it becomes a lie. A lie is a lie is a lie. Don't become a liar. And brethren, don't become cowardly and don't become faithless. God doesn't want that. He wants people who put their trust in him. And it says that over and over in the Bible. 
as I've already indicated, and I'll give you some more scriptures. That's the starting point, in a sense, of our relationship with the true God, the creator God. First, you must believe that he is. Then you can learn to love him. Then you can learn to obey him. But you've absolutely got to know he's there first. And that involves faith. So it's a very, very important, very basic concept. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, if you would. Ephesians chapter 6. Brethren, I want to give you a vital key here to resisting Satan. And that's all part, of course, of building the right kind of faith. Ephesians 6, verse 10. As Paul writes up this letter to the Ephesians, he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, not your might, but God's might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the stratagems, all the tricky ways of Satan the devil. He'll come at you one way one time and another way another time. He'll try to get you confused. He'll try to get you disoriented. He'll try to get you discouraged. He'll try to get you mad. He'll take advantage of whatever weakness you have. If you have a weakness for drinking too much, he'll go after that. If you have a weakness in, in losing your temple, he'll, temper, he'll go after you that way. He'll try to get at you any way he can. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in the high places, in the heavenly places. Wicked spirits or wicked, the hosts of wickedness in heavenly places were fighting legions of fallen angels who turned against God and had become demons. And they're going to try to get at us and find out our weak point and head, get at us and hurt us. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The evil day, we're in it now. And we're going to get in it a lot more in the next few years, as most of you know. This country is going down fast. Now we've had a president who said man marrying men is just fine. Some leading ministers, men, 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 not ministers, but men of the Senate, representatives are saying the same thing. We've had leading figures in other parts of the society come out and say it's just fine. They're saying abortion is fine, murdering little children. They're going more and more for this. The state of Maryland is going to have the vote for the first time up there, and they're going to apparently approve same-sex marriage. That'll be the first time it's been put to a vote for the people. Usually it's been decided by state legislatures or the courts. We'll see what the people say. If our people begin to vote for that, they're condemning themselves even more in the sight of the great God. We're not afraid of them. They'd better be afraid of God. The more they do that, the quicker God is going to bring this nation down if they defy the God of heaven. He is in charge, and we've got to know that. So anyway, we're fighting against these principalities and powers. Take up the whole armor of God. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus said, This book, as you understand it rightly, and let the Bible interpret the Bible, not human imagination. This is the revelation of the mind of God. It's the way God thinks about every aspect of life. It doesn't give you all the details of history or mathematics or science, 
but the basic principles and all the important spiritual principles, all of them are in this book, the revelation of the mind of God. This is truth. It's so important to study the Bible, to feed on it, to drink out of it, to have the mind of God. So he says, be sure that you do that. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. I think he says waist because the stomach and the sexual organs are all there at that point, And we tend to misuse liquor, things that we eat and drink. We tend to misuse the gift of sex. And those drives are considered coming from that part of the body. Truth. Guided according to God's word. Sex is not evil. Drinking a glass of wine is not evil. It's guided by truth, the word of God. Use those things the right way. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breast, it covers your heart, your attitude, so to speak, spiritually. And having put on your feet uh, the preparation of the gospel of peace. So that is doing the work of God. That's the way you move your life. You move your bodies to do the work. And then he says, above all. What? Above everything else. Above all. When you're dealing with Satan. Taking the shield of faith. You've got to have that shield above all taking the shield of faith. That shield protects your whole body to the extent you use it, with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan will begin to throw fiery darts, poison darts in a sense, to suddenly make you mad at people in the church, to get you in a wrong attitude, to make you confused, to make you terribly discouraged. He'll just discourage you, discourage you, pull you down by putting thoughts there that aren't normal. I've told you about how he attacked me just six or nine weeks after I was baptized by putting thoughts that had never been there before. Felt weird, but I came to realize it definitely was an attack from Satan when I prayed and fasted for two solid days. I'd never done that before. It just lifted, never came back again. Now, when it starts, I don't even let it go very many minutes. I realize where it comes from. Then I pray right then fervently, and then it lifts. It's gone. God delivers us again and again. He always will. But you're fighting, your warfare is not flesh and blood. It's against Satan the devil and his demons who's pumping out these wrong attitudes and these wrong thoughts. So you need the shield of faith to protect your heart, to protect your mind, to protect your eternal life in that sense. And that's so important. So I hope you can all learn to do that and understand how God has guided us, He's blessed us, and if we put our trust in Him, He will always deliver us. And another way to grow in faith, of course, is to remember the examples that you've seen of how God has helped you and your friends and your fellow brethren as you walk with God. Think of the examples of God and of deliverance that you've seen before. Many of you have those and try to know that God is your friend. God is your Father. He will always take care of you. As I, in my 63 years now in the work, from my student days, I can look back on all those things that God, He delivered us and protected us in special ways. I better not take the whole sermon to tell stories. But we were about to have a wreck. We were about to do this or that again and again. And God protected us, delivered us, helped us on the early baptizing tours. We're raising up churches and things like that. And I can't deny that. I know that that is there and he will never leave us nor forsake us. 
So we must always develop faith and grow in radiant faith. I want to turn now to an example. I'd read it before. I don't think I personally used it before in sermons until our dear friend and brother and God's servant, Wayne Pyle, used it right here several years ago. Maybe it was here, maybe it was in the other hall, but it was in this church in, in Charlotte. He gave the example, and many of you older brethren remembered, of, of this uh, Ethiopian man. Turn back to Jeremiah 38 here, and the example of, of Ebed-Melech. It shows here how Jeremiah was in danger. The princes wanted to kill him, and the king let them put him in a slime pit in the dungeon, and he was in trouble. And so, in verse 6, Jeremiah 38, verse 6, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was a court of the king's prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes in the dungeon. There was no water. There was no regular water, just a bunch of dirty, rotten slime and filth. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, here was a black man who trusted the Lord God of Israel, and God honored that. He will honor anyone who turns to God. And all of us, whether we're black or white or yellow, Hispanic, some of us are partly Germanic, and partly, I'm partly American Indian. All of us are partly various things. It doesn't make any difference. We're all spiritual Israel. In all spiritual matters, we are sons of God, daughters of God. And God honored this man even back under the old covenant because he was willing to obey and to fear the God of Israel. Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard about how they put Jeremiah, and he asked the king for help. And the king allowed him to do this quietly without telling those kind of vicious younger princes who wanted to kill him. And so the king commanded Ebed-Melech to get 30 men and get him out of that dungeon. So he did that. And then they took old rags and clothes, verse 11, and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah, verse 12. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits. And so he did. And so they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon, up out of a, a filthy mire where he undoubtedly would have died. A very unsanitary, filthy place swarming with germs. This black man got God's servant Jeremiah out of there and saved his life. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Then Zedekiah the king allowed this. He knew he was hiding over there from these princes, but was not in the slime pit anymore. And he had Jeremiah Jeremiah brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. I take it wasn't the main entrance, but through the back door, so to speak, where people would not know about it. He knew Jeremiah was God's prophet, and so he said, I will ask you something, hide nothing. And so Jeremiah made him promise that he wouldn't kill him, and then Jeremiah told him what would happen. Then the, then the Babylonians came in, and of course, when the king of Babylon came in, chapter 39, chapter 39, verse 6, then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah the king. So God allowed that. He killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon killed all the nobles of Judah 
Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him to Babylon. Metal, metal rope, so to speak, things to chain around him, a terribly uncomfortable way, a suffering way to go. You see, your sons died before your very eyes. You see, and then they take hot iron probably and burn your eyes out. That could have happened to Ebed-Melech. He must have known that. He knew they had the city surrounded. He knew what might happen. But he trusted in the God of Israel. He put his faith in the invisible God whom he did not see and you do not see and I do not see. Except we have many more examples of God's intervention, no doubt, than Ebed-Melech had. Because we see the Bible, if we proved it, we see these events in modern times, great big events taking place that God has said, and we've heard about them, and I've been hearing about them for 63 years. And I've seen them come about. Because 60, 63 years ago, Mr. Armstrong was saying, America's going to go down and Britain is going down. And if Britain doesn't turn back to God or turn to God, there will be no British Empire. I heard him say that. There is no British Empire. It's gone. He said, these sea gates will be taken away. Most of them have been. They're gone. He said later when they had the Russian invasion of Eastern Europe, he said these nations like Czechoslovakia, Poland and East Germany are going to eventually get away from there so there'll be an eastern leg to the beast. And he said specifically back in the late 60s and 70s, the Berlin Wall will come down and the two Germanys will become one. We've cited that in our magazines, quoting from Mr. Armstrong. How can you know that? You young people listening, you young people over in Australia and South Africa and Britain and Canada, how could that old man know that? Because of this book, that's why... Big nations, we're not talking sentimental stuff, we're talking real stuff that happened in the lifetimes of most of your parents. And in my lifetime, it's been happening because God is real. These things have happened and they will happen. Ebed-Melech trusted in that God, the God of, the, the God of Israel. And so the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah then in chapter 15 after they'd come in and taken over and they might have started looking for Ebed-Melech you know, and try to get him too. But God told him through Jeremiah, he said, go and speak to Ebed-Melech, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, verse 16, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in the day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the man at whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall fall by the sword, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, he told this Ethiopian man. Your life, brethren, I can say this to you, your life shall be as a prize to you. In this case, eternal life. Your life shall be as a prize to you. Why? Because you have put your trust in me. Remember those words. Because you have put your trust in me. God looks at that one thing over and over and over in the Bible. Will people really trust me? That's very meaningful to God. And we've all got to learn to develop that attitude more than we have ever done in recent years. And I hope all of you can do that. 
I think Mr. Pyle had a great deal of that. I remember him preaching that sermonette and using this example, the main ser- scripture he used in the sermonette using Ebed-Melech as the example. And we've got to have that same kind of faith and even more. Here's a few keys briefly, and I won't try to spend a whole sermon explaining them. I will later sometimes perhaps. But here are five keys to build radiant faith. I mean real faith, radiant faith. As I said, Mr. Armstrong, in the early days of the college, he just spoke as though this is going to happen. You are going to be healed. God is with us in a remarkable way. And brethren, we need to speak that same way and think that way because that's what God wants us to, to exude, a sense of radiant faith in the real God, the God of Israel. First of all, the most obvious one of all is study the Bible. Don't just read it, study it. Please, brethren, you young people, don't just glance at scriptures real quick on your computer. Get this in a permanent way in a written Bible where you can kind of hold it in your hand. It doesn't just disappear by a button. God doesn't disappear by the push of a button. Try to make the Bibles permanent, real, mark it. Think about it. Read it over and over. Meditate on it. Make this Bible a part of your thinking so as you drink in of and read and reread these stories and say and understand as you study the Bible, this is the mind of God. God said this. And then you turn over and find more and more examples and drink in of it. Feast on it. As it says back in John 6, 57, feed on Christ. John chapter 6, verse 57. Feed on Christ. This is Christ in print right here. This book, feed on it. Feed your mind, your heart, your body, your soul by drinking into the Bible. As you all know, Romans 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Drink into this book and feed on it, and then you will begin to think like those men thought, and you will begin to have a radiant faith. Secondly, meditate on the Word of God. Meditate on what you've been reading. Don't just read it quickly, but as I've said, turn it over and over in your mind and then go back again at the end of a study sometimes and just review key things. I know I've studied the Bible many times. I'm not bragging. I should have done. I was a Bible teacher. I don't know how many times I've read it. I've probably read the New Testament hundreds of times and certainly even the Old Testament Many times, dozens of times perhaps. But recently I went back again to read the examples of the faith of Elijah and Elisha and all the unusual miracles they performed just to increase my faith and to have that attitude, thinking about what God did through them even back then. Sort of picture, you know, here Elijah comes to the river, no bridge, throws this thing out. Where's the Lord God of Israel? The waters part hither and thither, according to King James. They departed hither and thither. He walked across. Later, he quieted the storm. Later, he did other things. He caused it to storm. Later, he faced the 400 prophets of Baal. Was he afraid of all those men and all their impressive costumes and robes, probably? No. He thought, here's a bunch of ants out here. I'm serving the God of heaven who made all of them. I don't need to be afraid of them. And he wasn't. At one point, he brought fire down from heaven. The king was sending armies out against him. And one captain came up with his 50. And then Elijah said, if if I'm a true minister of God, uh, deal with these men. And God brought fire down from heaven. Then the next captain came up. And 
he wiped out his 50. Fire came up. The third captain came up. He'd heard about, remember, he didn't literally, uh, well, before anything else could happen, he went up and fell on his face right in front of Elijah, said, Elijah, you know, we're your servants. The king has told us to do this. Please have mercy. Then God said, let him off the hook and go with him. So then he went with him to see the king. He had faith. Elisha comes bound along, and then he goes right back to the Jordan River, just like Elijah did when Elijah had been taken up in the chariots of fire. So he comes right back to the Jordan through Elijah's cloak. He got Elijah's cloak, threw that same cloak out, whipped it out, so to speak, over the river. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And the waters parted hither and thither. And he went back <laughs> across the river. And then he caused an axe head to come right up out of the water. He caused, he healed polluted water. He healed polluted food. He caused food to multiply. Just like Christ, that example, like Christ caused the feeding of the 5,000 and so on. When Christ came along, he did a lot of those same things. And then when he was totally surrounded by a big army all around him and his servant was scared to death, what do we do? What do they do? He said, Lord God, please open the minds of this young man. Open his eyes that he, we may, he may see. There's an old Protestant hymn, as some of you know, open our eyes that we may see. <laughs> and that's where that comes from. And then the, the uh, God opened the eyes of this young man and he saw the whole mountainside covered with angels and chariots of fire. Oh, God had a little army of his own there. <laughs> and the army of the king, the pagan king, was worth nothing compared to that. Or do we know that we're surrounded by angels? Yes, we are. Do we know that that same God is alive? I hope we do. We need that faith. Meditate on the Word. Thirdly, the third thing we need to do to build faith is to meditate on the examples of God's intervention which you have seen or heard about in a way you believe. I hope you believe my story or my, my comment on what is true and believe that I tell the truth. That Howard Clark, whom I loved my exact age much heavier man sitting in a wheelchair for seven or eight years. They sat over on that side as I was preaching there. He'd sit and the deacons would wheel him in from the special uh, limousine. I know Mr. Davis will remember that. I'm sure they wheeled him in and they brought him into the Shakespeare Club. And there he was. He couldn't move. And God suddenly healed Howard. I baptized Howard. You better believe I knew him. God healed him. He sat there for years. He sure put on a good act for six or eight years. He, he went to all, some say, oh, maybe he didn't go to the doctor. Well, they sent him to the best naval hospitals in the world to get him well. They couldn't. God healed him. He had shrapnel wounds from the Korean War. Supernaturally healed. I saw it. I can't forget that. The lady with the withered arm, all these others. I can never forget that. All the others example of Mrs. Beam who had breast cancer, and I've told you the details, how she was suddenly healed. Dennis Brady's daughter, who had spinal meningitis, the fatal variety, and the medical doctors had taken the blood test, said she was going to die. And I went out to pray for her, and I had a little daughter about the same age, and somehow that made me even more sentimental, perhaps. And I prayed, it really shook me, I prayed fervently, and God healed that little girl, it was just gone. The next day, she was up playing. No spinal meningitis, nothing. 
Many healings, many blessings from the great God. Some of you have friends that have been healed. Some of you have had relatives that have been healed. I hope you've been reading about the examples of the British Empire going down. I hope you've been reading examples about the various sea gates, about the Berlin Wall coming down, and read Mr. Armstrong's old article showing it was going to come down before it did. Not little things, big, major things that only this church really understands. That is the greater church of God. And we emphasize it more than any of them, if I do say so. We need to emphasize it. We need to build faith in that God and walk by faith and radiate faith in the days ahead. Fourthly, you need to pray for faith. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Pray for faith. Ask God to give you faith. Ask God himself to give you faith. Give you, ask God for it and pray to, again and again. Say, Father in heaven, please give us in this church today the radiant faith that Jesus had, that Peter had, that Paul had. And then as we build that faith through your spirit within us, as we grow in faith, please begin to give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit that more people can just be healed all over this church and all over the world finally. Show your power that men may know that you're a real God and that you have true servants so they'll begin to listen. Pray for that kind of faith with all your heart. And fifthly, exercise faith. All day long, just like you build a muscle, try to say, how can I grow in faith? And I've got to have faith in every phase of, of your life. You have faith in your marriage life. God says, love your wife, love your wife. Obey your husband, obey your husband. If God says, uh, don't eat pork, then by faith, don't eat pork at all. If God says, come out of the world, it may not be fun, but come out of the world. If God says, well, you hurt your finances by paying a tithe. And that'll hurt my finances. Say, no, it will not hurt my finances because God promises to bless me, not curse me. So by faith, tithe. By faith, put your life in God's hands. By faith, give your life to others. He who lays down his life will be blessed, God says, yet requires faith. You've got to believe that God's going to back that up. Why should you give up your life, your present life? Because there is a real God. And if you give your life to that God, he will take care of you. You know he's there. You know he means what he says. By faith, you do what God says. In your married life, every aspect of your family, in your job, could you make more money in your company if you cheat a little bit? Probably so. Many in the world do that. But you don't do that. You run your company, you run your business, you run your life totally honest because God is involved. By faith, you live by every word of God, and then you will see God backs that up. He always backs that up, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Will you have temporary trials across the way? Of course you will. He's not going to put you on a bed of flowers and always a rose bed, so to speak. He shows there'll be trials, but in the big things, he will always watch over you, help you, deliver you, and bless you, and give you eternal life. So exercise faith continually. Think about it all day long. How can I more fully trust God in this part of my family life, in this part of my work life, in this part of building my business, in this part of my financial life, in this part of taking care of my health? You say, I don't like to exercise. But God says so is that exercise is good. Exercise a little bit whether you feel like it or not because it's going to help you. 
everything you think of it. I'm just trying to just cover, can't cover everything, but there's so many parts of our lives where we learn to live by faith and learn to do that. So, brethren, the five keys are study the Bible, drink into this book. Secondly, meditate on the Bible. Think about the Bible. Think about the examples of faith and the various ones in the Bible who had faith. Thirdly, meditate on the examples of faith which you have seen, miracles you have seen, blessings you have seen, interventions from God that you've seen in your life, in the lives of others you've known. Think on those things. And then fourthly, uh, of course, pray for faith. Cry out to God with earnest prayer. Please give this church more faith and help us to walk and live by faith and radiate faith. And fifthly, exercise faith. Turn with me to Psalm 34 now, brethren. The book of Psalms at this point and chapter 34. And I encourage all of you to read dozens of examples like this all through the Psalms. I'm just going to give you a very few of them. But Psalm 34, beginning in verse 8, I think, is where I would like to begin. Oh, taste and see that the eternal is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Yes, blessed is that man who trusts in God. Oh, fear the eternal, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. So the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the eternal shall not lack any good thing. We'll go through trials, but overall, God will give us everything we need, and we see that as we serve God. I've seen that over and over for 63 years, and I've lived all over this country. I've lived in Britain for four years of my adult life, and many places. I've seen how God does that to his people to the extent they trust in him. Now notice uh, chapter uh, 34 again, verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. We've got to trust God. That's so important to God. Now let's go back to Psalm 33, if you would. Psalm 33, verse 10, beginning. The eternal brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Brethren, we're going to see pictures on the TV of big, important meetings. Some of us have seen the last few days these meetings of the Republican Convention. Lots of fine speeches and platitudes. But are they going to solve the problems of the world? No. Now, the Democrats are coming in here. That we're going to solve everything, and we'll give utopia. Will they do that? No. Will the people in the United Nations solve the problems of Syria? No. Will they solve the problems of Iran, Israel, others? No. We know that. Think about it. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, God says. It doesn't amount to anything in His sight. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the eternal stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the eternal. You see, those who really look to God... And we as a nation are turning and turning and turning further away from that all the time. And the people whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. The eternal looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. He watches us. God is watching this assembly right now. This is one of the largest churches of God on earth assembled together at this particular time. Of course he's aware of what we're doing. He sees all the sons of men on all the inhabitants of the earth. 
He fashions their hearts individually. He teaches us lessons for all eternity. He's working with us. He's fashioning us and molding us to be his sons. He considers all their works. No king is saved by a multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a van, or we could say a tank or an atomic submarine. It's not going to save us. Neither shall it deliver by its great strength. Moreover, the eye of the ever-living one is on those who fear him, who have that awe of God. His eye is on us here, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. There is going to be famine. He will keep us alive. There are going to be horrible disease epidemics. To the degree he, we trust God, he will watch over us. He will protect us. He will take care of us. He will heal us. He will deliver us. Our soul waits for the eternal. He is our help and our shield, for our hearts shall rejoice in him. Why? Because we have trusted in his holy name. There it is again. God looks upon us because we have trusted in his holy name. So think about that, brethren. Let's develop that absolute trust in the God who gives us life and breath, the radiant faith, and look to God as our Father, to look to God as our Savior, to look to God as our Deliverer, to look to God, in a sense, as our friend. We know Him. We walk with Him, talk with Him, commune with Him, and He works with us and fashions and molds us and makes us like He is in His character to be His full sons and His kingdom and His family so we can walk with Him and live with Him forever because we have started out by proving that He exists and putting our full faith and trust in Him.